Thank you, Jessica. Well, good morning. Uh, you can tell the ones who stayed a little late at the wedding celebration last night were the ones with the bags under our eyes. But it is, um, you know, I was just thinking this morning how fun it is to be in a, a part of a Christian community because I get to see you primarily in a worshiping atmosphere, but then when there's a wedding or a birthday party or some other kind of celebration, then I get to see you in a little bit of a different light. Um, and that's just a lot of fun to come and worship with people this morning that maybe you saw dancing on the dance floor last night and celebrating the uh, Schultz Abernathy wedding. Um, I was on the dance floor as well. More than likely, my dance moves have gone viral by now. So you, you could probably find them on the Internet. But the um, we are in Matthew chapter five. But by the way, I don't know if you keep up with these kinds of things, but just in case you haven't, there is a theory. May some might call it a conspiracy, but a theory that September 23rd, which is Saturday, is uh, the world's end. And it is the planet X theory that a planet is going to intercept planet Earth. And that's it. And it's based on numerology, biblical numerology, dating and some uh, biblical dating and some um, passages in Scripture as well. It's a certain interpretation. I don't know if you follow that, but uh, I don't I, I think it's a hoax personally, as I read that this morning. And I've heard about it before the planet X theory. But um, I just take great comfort and delight in the Lord when anything that comes my way. Because by God's grace, I'm ready. Whether planets collide, whether the whether the earth melts, as Peter talks about, whatever it is that God has in mind, all of these signs um, and even false interpretations and false dates are used by God to get us ready for the end. Because maybe it won't be Saturday, but the end is coming. And the main message is be prepared in all these hurricanes and Tornadoes and earthquakes are one of the purposes is to get our our attention. Make sure we're ready for the sovereign God, that our hearts are prepared, that we have confessed Christ and believed in the gospel. We have to believe in the gospel in order to live the way that Jesus the King is calling us to live in his sermon in Matthew chapter 5. And this morning we'll look at the second part of this very challenging Passage. As a matter of fact, I was just thinking this morning that this this perhaps is more challenging to Americans than anybody else because it's really challenges our mindset about freedoms, about rights and how to apply the kingdom teachings of heaven to our cultural norms here in our society. Last week, we looked at an eye for an eye or lex talionis. This morning, we'll look at the second part of this passage, which concentrates more on a turning the other cheek. Now, let me read Matthew chapter five, verses thirty eight through forty two. You've heard that it was said. This is Jesus speaking. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Hmm. Last week, when we looked at eye for an eye, tooth for tooth or lex talionis, we saw that it is uh, God's plan. God's a just plan. God's a just God. And he has just laws established for us as humanity. We need laws. We need boundaries because our tendency is to sin because of our sin nature. And so laws are established to promote unity, to promote peace, to promote civility, and of course, justice. And the idea behind Lex Talionis is you just can't get away with criminal activity. It's a courtroom concept. It's not to be applied in personal relationships, which we'll talk about. These are things, courtrooms, judges, magistrates have been put into place by God to promote justice. We do live in an imperfect world. There, we have imperfect justice systems, try as we may, but they're still good. And we should strive always towards justice. And the idea is that you, no matter how powerful you are, no matter how rich you are, it's not okay for you to use that to abuse other people. So this law helps the weak. It helps the vulnerable. And it's a very good thing. Of course, it's the idea behind the, the punishment fits the crime in degree and kind. So eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You might pay for a crime financially. You may pay for it with your life, depending on what the courts decided in that day. But what it's not meant to do, it is not meant to be a law that we apply on a personal level in our personal relationships so that we're always pushing each other around, always getting each other back for every little thing, every little offense. And then you talk about a crumbling society. Um, Then you'd really see evil. But what had happened in Jesus's day, why is he even talking about this in the middle of a sermon? Because. The Jews of that day, and particularly the leaders, the Pharisees, they struggled with misinterpreting this law. And Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, but I say he is putting the law back in its proper place. He's he's renewing the proper understanding of why these words were said in the first place. And he has to bring this up because the Jews of the day had interpreted in their personal relationships and it gave them a biblical text and excuse to just exact vengeance on anybody that crossed them. That's what it had become, a biblical excuse to get people back for the things that they've done for you. And, of course, you know that doesn't, it's not always equal. Because if somebody offends you, our tendency is to up the ante and hurt them even worse. So that's what Jesus was up against. And he is trying to graciously speak the truth in love and show this poor group of people who think if anybody in the world is right with God, it's got to be me because look at the life I live. He's graciously showing them, no, you are a sinner and in your heart is evil and you need a savior. And that's the gospel for all of us. This attitude of personal vengeance, Lex Talionis, brought me back to Genesis chapter four. You remember at the fall and how quickly man just turned to evil. I mean, brother slaying brother. 
Then you had the, the line of Cain. And who came from the line of Cain, the murderer, but that guy Lamech? And here's what he boasts about in verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, already polygamy, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So you just wound me, inflict any kind of pain, you're going to die, your family's going to die. It's, it's, it's totally out of kilter. It's arrogant. It's vengeful. It's exactly the attitude that Jesus is addressing. So it's an encouragement to let the courtrooms enact their justice. But in your heart on a personal level, Scripture tells us to love. Scripture tells us to forgive. The next passage, this is just as challenging because the next words that we will look at was where Jesus says, love your enemies. How do you do that? What is an enemy? How could Jesus ask me to love somebody that has hurt me or I have perhaps for good reason something against? And this, these are the kind of teachings where the world that we live in and, and the cultural norms, principles, morality really clash with kingdom principles. The principles that come from heaven. And as sons of God, sons and daughters of God, we have to wrestle with how do we apply these in our lives? Last week, we asked the question, uh, are you dead yet? Because in order to live by these principles, self-denial has to take place. We have to see ourselves in perspective of the gospel. I guess you might ask the question with this part of the passage, have you been slapped in the cheek yet? Or slapped in the face yet. So, are you ready to be challenged with this teaching? Let's look at the idea of uh, what it means to turn the other cheek and how that segues into our understanding of our personal rights. And how do you apply our personal rights in light or in perspective of the teaching of the gospel and our salvation? Does turning the other cheek mean that Christians are supposed to be doormats, that we are supposed to just allow abuse and be abused, and that's what it means to resist, to not resist evil, to turn the other cheek? Absolutely not. It's not what Jesus, God is a God of justice. Justice counts. It means something. Truth, we're not to just let evil infiltrate the church. There's such a thing as church discipline. So, no, we do resist evil. The scripture is all about resisting evil. If anyone should stand for justice and be against abusive behavior, it is Christians because we have the foundation to do that. The bedrock to do that. So we are to stand for justice, fight for the oppressed. So if it doesn't mean that justice is still important, then what is Jesus getting at? Justice is still important. We see some examples, for instance, in the Apostle Paul. When he was falsely accused by the Jews, put in jail by false accusations, he was going to be sent to trial 
And if the Jews were to try him, he knew that they had a personal vendetta against him, that vengeance thing. They didn't like him preaching the gospel. And so if they had their way, Paul would be a dead man. So what did he do in Acts 25, 11? He says, if then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. The apostle is saying, I give myself to justice. I'll give myself to the courts. And if you can come up with evidence and show that I have rightly committed a crime and it's a crime worthy of death, then I'll die. I I submit myself to God's justice. But if you can't show that, if these are false, there's no true witnesses. And I know that you're not going to give me a fair The Jews are not going to give me a fair trial. So I appeal to Caesar. He was a Roman citizen. And so he appealed to the law of the land. He could use his citizenship to go into the courts of Caesar. In other words, he didn't just bow down to injustice and say, let whatever happened, happen. He called them out for their injustice. And what a sad commentary that he actually, in a sense, perhaps was felt safer or that there would be more justice in the pagan courts of the Roman Empire than among his own people, the people of God. And then in Jesus's day, when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was brought before the Jewish leaders, confronted, of course, falsely accused in John 18, verses 22 through 24. What did he do? He calls them out as well for their injustice. When he had said these things, Jesus said some words to them that they didn't like. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Again, you have someone saying, If you can present the evidence, I submit myself to justice. I believe in it as well. But if you can't, then why are you treating me as a criminal? You're doing the wrong. So Jesus, he did not slap back. He did not retaliate, but he called them out for breaking the law, for misusing justice. How does this tie into a slap in the cheek and not resisting evil? A lot of times we look at this passage and we just kind of I look at this passage and I just picture myself getting beat up and not doing anything about it. And that is not a fun visual, you know, especially for guys. You don't you just don't want to get taken advantage of. You don't want to be beaten up. And uh, that's not what this passage is talking about. This is not a fighting fist to cuff situation. It's not really a picture of violence. What it is, it is it is a personal insult to dignity. That's what a slap in the face in that culture and even in our culture means. We've, I haven't seen it in real life, but in movies I've seen somebody get slapped in the face, maybe by a um, superior commander or something like that. And what it is, it is an ultimate insult. So for the Jews, it was an ultimate insult to get slapped in the face. It was very dishonorable. It's better just to come together and fight on equal terms. It's better to get beaten up than to be slapped in the face. 
because it's it's meant to be an insult. It's meant to be contemptuous. It's meant to be demeaning. It's as if to say, you're not even worth my effort to get sweaty or bloody. You're, you're such a you're such a nobody. You're so unworthy. And I'm so much more superior than you. And the only thing worse than getting slapped in the face um, is to get slapped with the back of the hand instead of just the front. And some of the scholars look at Jesus's wording and they think if if you're right handed, like a lot of people are, in order to get slapped in the other cheek, the person has to come at you with the back of their hand, which is even more demeaning as to, as to say you're not even worth to be slapped with the front of my hand. So I'm just going to use the back of my hand to insult you. So it is the absolute ultimate insult on a person's dignity. Today, we don't see much of that. Uh, today, we're all about insulting each other with words. That's how we exact vengeance. That's how we try to belittle one another. Reminded of the story of Winston Churchill, where not everybody liked Winston Churchill. And there was this lady that came up to him and he said, she said, if you were my husband, I would put poison in your coffee. And Winston Churchill responded, dear lady, if you were my wife, I would drink it. <laughs> so words of insult. And today we have we, we, we use slams and it's a big thing that your mama, your mama, because, you know, you're not supposed to mess with my mama. And if you start talking about my mama, then that's a really, really bad insult. And you better be ready for something back. Your, your mama, your mama's so dumb. That when she went to the movies and saw that under 17 not permitted, she went back and got 16 more people to go to the movies with her. You, nobody in here has a sense of humor this morning. So this is a deep insult. It's very dishonoring. So what is Jesus saying here? When your dignity is insulted or assaulted, when you are dis. Honored, it'd be nice to, for everyone to honor everyone. That's what God's intention is. But when that doesn't happen, you're not given perhaps the dignity that you think you deserve. Do not retaliate. Do not return the insult. Take it on the cheek. Take it on both cheeks three times if necessary. Do not dehumanize or dishonor your fellow man. Forgive. Love. Jesus, of course, is our example. He was slapped. He called out the injustice in, in the passage of John that we looked at. But he did not retaliate. Isaiah 56. Chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. I mean, that's Jesus's attitude. This is the God that is. Is living justice, living righteousness, his attitude as he comes to the cross and and hangs there uh, while he's suffocating under the weight of his own organs is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When our right to dignity is challenged, 
Do not return the insult on a personal level, on the basis that we have been forgiven, on the basis of how God treats us. We forgive. We're not here to impress man. We're here to impress God. And what happens a lot of times is when we are insulted in this way, it's no longer about justice. It's not standing for righteousness. Somehow the self jumps on the throne and it's all about me saving face. Somehow my pride gets into it. It's about vengeance. It's about me wanting to look good in the eyes of others. And so we have this saving face mentality. Uh, You're not going to one up me. I'll get you bad. I'll teach you a lesson to not try to insult me like that. And you are not ever going to say or go around thinking that you're more important than I am. Do we ever struggle with that? Just this week, I know I don't mean to overuse driving illustrations, but they just seem to happen to come my way. I was uh, at a traffic light and I was taking a left and I had the green arrow. I'd waited patiently. And the green arrow came. So it was my turn to go. But I noticed this guy who I knew. I'm thinking to myself, he's got a red light because otherwise I wouldn't have the green light to go. But he is like inching towards me. And uh, of course, all this happened in a matter of seconds. And I'm thinking to myself, no, you're not. You're not going to. I got the right. I got the green light. You are not going to cut me off as if you're more important than I am. And then this message came to me. I thought, hmm. All of a sudden, my dignity was insulted. And, and somebody just wasn't going to act like they deserved to be in the front of the line. Like when somebody butts in front of you. you know, I wasn't going to have that. And I realized, yeah, there's this thing. Okay, so, so the light was green. But why did I feel so? Why did I get so defensive all of a sudden? Because we don't like other people thinking they're more special than we are. Just really goes against the grain. And Jesus is challenging that mindset. How far do we take this thing called dignity? How important is it to it? And what is our basis for dignity? Should not our basis be from God? Our dignity is from God. And if some creep that wants to creep up a little closer and maybe so he can go and not me and be first, so to speak. If that's all it takes to to rub my dignity wrong, then... Wow. No wonder there's a lot of people in the world that are just ready to fight at the drop of a hat. Feel very assaulted. So self-denial comes in here. What am I really standing for? Am I standing for God's honor, for God's glory? Or did all of a sudden everything just become about me? You push certain buttons and everything can quickly become very self-centered. We have to be careful with this. We're going to talk about rights segue into that rights are beautiful they're wonderful i believe they're god given but i also believe that scripture tells us to be very very careful with rights i believe they're falsely given too by the way but very very careful with rights because this whole idea of rights can mix with our sinful nature can quickly turn into a self-centeredness and a selfishness that comes, becomes all about me 
And the law of God to love God and your neighbor all of a sudden doesn't count because you just stepped on my rights. And now you're my enemy. We have to tread very, very cautiously and properly understand what it means. Well, what do we have? Of course, in our culture, we have the Bill of Rights. We have the U.S. Constitution. And it guarantees us the four basic rights of humanity. Things that I think would be wonderful to see all over the world. Rights are a huge thing. You ever read the paper without the word rights being in it in the last 10 years? And especially in the last year? Four basic rights that are addressed in our Constitution happen to be addressed right in this passage. Our right to dignity. Our right to security. Our right to liberty or freedom. And then our right to own or possess property. Jesus addresses all four of those in this passage. Our right for dignity is a wonderful right, I think, that all humanity should be created as equal human beings. And take it a step farther because we're created in the image of God. We have these inalienable rights, meaning that we didn't come up with them. They, they are God's idea and we live in them and embrace them. We can't cut them off in this earth because they were not ours to begin with. This idea of equal humanity and being created in the image of God. It's a wonderful thing. It's a necessary thing. But we don't always get treated like that. And if you're a Christian and you don't get treated like that, yes, you appeal to justice. But what else do you do? Jesus says, don't retaliate. You're going to find yourself in situations, maybe in a community, maybe among your own family members or friends where you are insulted, whether you deserve it or not. The world's way, of course, is retaliation. Isn't that our natural inclination? I'm going to get you back. That hurt. You're going to pay. That's a principle of the world, not a principle of a kingdom outpost. What's after the dignity that we've talked about? Well, security. Verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Again, this is not a scene of violence. It's not where you're getting mugged. You know, maybe you're in the city or you're in the the violent streets of crew. And there's some muggers there and they have you and they're like, give me your wallet. Here's my wallet. And they start to leave. You say, wait a minute. I got some money in my sock. You can have that too. They start to leave. Hold on. The, uh, the key to my house is in my secret belt pat, uh, pouch. You can have that too. It's the, that's not what we're talking about here. This is somebody who is being sued. The, the, the insinuation is that they're, they have done something wrong. They're being taken to court. Now the courts will decide if they're guilty or not. But they are legitimately being sued and they're being sued for their tunic. Tunic was the inner garment worn in that day. They didn't dress like we do today. It was the the clothing that is the closest to your body. You might say um, your comfy clothes, uh, your your best pair of jeans, you know, that you've broken in. You're very comfortable. You feel very secure in those. Um, Then your cloak is your outer garment. It's kind of like your Carhartt jacket, you, you might say. It's something that you rely on. 
Now, in that day, your cloak, it's a, it's a multi-purpose piece of clothing. It's not just a jacket. You go in your closet and you, you have five to pick from and you pick this cloak. Usually your cloak, you had one. And you're fortunate in that day to have one. If you're wealthier, maybe more. And it was kind of like your protection from the elements. If it was really, really cold, that's how you survived a cold night was that cloak. You needed it. That was kind of like your tent and your sleeping bag at the same time because you slept in it as well. So it's this tremendous idea of something that was very necessary as a staple of life in that day. Kind of like. Our attitude today about phones, you just can't go anywhere without your phone, right? You got to have your phone so you can be staring at it. Well, it was a staple of life for them. It was so important that in um, Leviticus, you could pledge your cloak, but yet they had to return it before nightfall. That's how important it was. You couldn't keep it overnight or the poor guy might freeze or whatever, be very uncomfortable. So um, it's a it's a big deal. This idea of a, a tunic and then a cloak. And this person is being sued for their tunic. It's kind of like, you know, suing me for the shirt off my back. And the only thing you might have left is your cloak. And Jesus says, um, it's all you got left. I want you to give that as well. Now, what, what's behind that? Since the, the idea is that you have done something wrong and you are being sued in court according to the law to show how sorry you are for whatever it is that you've done, assuming that you're guilty. You communicate to this person how sorry you are that you have been unjust. You give him your cloak as well. You give him everything, all your security to show your remorse and to show your respect for what's right and for what's wrong. The talk about shocking the world. If somebody says, I'm going to sue you, what is your first reaction? Of course, we live in a suing culture. First reaction, obviously, is. To go inward, not outward. To think of everything we can possibly hold on to as our security. What will I have left? No, you can't have that. Don't go after this. It takes a tremendous amount of faith. Where does our security really come from? What is it really based on? Just like our dignity. What is, what is it really based on? Can man truly take our dignity away from us? Can man truly take our security away from us? If we're trusting in God. So here, take it. Rather than being armed for a fight, retaliation, battled arrogance. This kind of behavior exposes the light of the kingdom to the darkness of the world. It is an entirely different way of life. And it's how Christ treats us. Does not Christ give us more than we deserve? At his own expense and personal sacrifice. Maybe there's a reason that we're, we're being sued. And they want to wipe us clean. Show, we show where our security really lies. We show the importance of doing that which is right. We show that we are a son of God as the next 
passage will say. He comes right out and says, this is how the sons of God act. This is what it means. Third, so dignity, security, liberty. If anyone forces you to go one mile, verse 41, go with him two miles. Properly understood, we have the right to freedom. I, people define that different ways. But God created us independently. Yeah, we're inter, interdependent, but also we have our own minds. We're responsible for our own lives, ultimately. And we make our own decisions. We make our own decisions about heaven and hell. We're responsible for that. We're not as a community. There's time for community. But then so independence and uh, we believe America believes. And I think I think it's a good concept that we thrive as humanity better with freedoms, of course, with boundaries. But the more freedom, because the idea is that we will make right decisions for ourselves and with how to manage our own money. The more freedoms we have, the less restrictions, the better, as long as it's within a wholesome atmosphere. So humanity can thrive with that. That's the whole idea of Western civilization. God's intent. We thrive with freedoms. If you ever felt like there's all these demands on your life, you're like, what happened to my life? I don't even get to do what I want to do anymore. Where's my rights? Everybody's making these demands of me. Where's my free time? My life. In Jesus's day, <clears throat> according to the law, uh, the law of the land was that you could be conscripted into the service of the Roman Empire. And the Persians did the same thing. So, for instance, if you've been given a, mi a, a mission um, by the Roman Empire to carry an important message from one town to the next, you hop on your horse and you're going there, your horse breaks its leg. You still have this mission you have to complete. So you can, the, the nearest person with the nearest horse, you can say, um, you know, Hannah, I need your horse to finish delivering this message. And by law, you have to provide that horse. Or if the soldier broke his leg because he fell with a horse. And so there's two broken legs. And you could say, Hannah, not only do I need your horse, here's the message. You take it the rest of the way. And by law, you have to do that. So you're conscripted into things um, in order to keep, to keep the flow going. The best example, I think, of this would be when Jesus was taken Captive, falsely accused. He had been beaten. He had been whipped. And now he is on the road uh, to go to the place of the cross. Um, and he's having to carry his cross down the Via Della Rosa. And he is so fatigued and he is in such pain. And, you know, he's lost so much blood physically that he just can't do it anymore. Now, the Romans that are in charge of him by law, their superior officers said, this is what you have to do. Justice has to be done. This guy's been sentenced to death. You got to get him from here to there so we can kill him. So they're on this mission. But what do you do when the guy can't even carry his own cross? And what do the Romans do? They point to Simon of Cyrene and say, you carry his cross. He can't say, sorry, I don't feel like it. It's Roman law. He became, he was conscripted into this drama to play out, carried it for as long as he needed so that justice, so-called justice, could be done. 
Another way that they used it was that the Romans would have people, they could, um, the Roman soldiers, they had their, what the, the gunny sack or their weapons, things that they had to carry that were very heavy in their employ. So they could take citizens or subjects of the empire and say, uh, I'm tired here, you carry it. And apparently, I'm assuming it kind of got abused because they came down with a one mile <clears throat> rule or law. Yes, your soldier can get them to carry it, but only for one mile. It can't be five miles or ten miles or twenty miles or whatever. So there was this one mile law. You could be drafted into public duty. It was for the good of the community, for the good of the public. It's kind of like in the movies where you see uh, some federal agent. There's this big car chase and... Um, you wreck your car, your government car, and then you run over to this sports car and the guy and you kick him out of it. And you say it's federal business and you take his car. I don't know if that's legal in real life or not. No, I got a nod. No, but it looks cool in the movies. But conscripted. <clears throat> John MacArthur says when someone infringes on your liberty and says, will you carry my pack one mile? And he happens to be hated Roman and you're a Jew. And he happens to be going somewhere and you could care less about where he's going. It's in the opposite direction for you. You're literally carrying the weapons of warfare against your people. And this is your avowed enemy. And he asks you to go one mile. Jesus says, go to. Why? Because that's how God treats us. These these are ways that shock the world. This is how people are, are wooed in to the kingdom. This is how God woos us in to the kingdom. If God only went the first mile and carried our burden one mile, we would be dead in our sins. He carries it all the way freely at his cost. And yet there's a freedom to laying down our liberties. There's no law that says we cannot do these things. That we cannot love, that we cannot forgive, that we can not have to retaliate. That even when forced to do something by our own choice, that we can go an extra mile for the sake of the gospel. To get people's attention, to show people that there is such a thing as a heart of, of character and goodness when you give your life to Christ. It's... The, the world is not used to this kind of stuff. I'm not used to this kind of stuff. God uses it for gospel purposes. And then lastly, we have property. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. <clears throat> we love our things in America. We love our possessions. And sometimes when we hear the words, can I borrow? We cringe just at those words. Ah, Can I borrow your car? Aren't you that guy that has 10 kids under the age of five, all with sticky fingers that constantly drool, tootsie roll drool down their shirts? Um. You, you mean the car I just spent all weekend washing and waxing? I think my wife needs it. I'll have to get back to you. 
can I borrow? I have lent out things uh, painfully that did not come back in the kind of shape that they were originally lent out. This is a tricky thing. Well, let me just say that in this passage, it's implied that there is a true need. This isn't just some moocher. You're not aiding and betting somebody who's irresponsible. Like, can I take your car to Florida because I don't want to put the miles on my new car kind of thing? You know, put them, let me put them on your car. There's a true need here. It's legitimate. Um, you're not helping a beggar because they just refuse to work and they can make a better living beggar. It's not that kind of thing. It's, there's responsibility there. It is a true need. The idea is that if you're able to give... If God has provided you the means, even sacrificially, give. Kingdom people give sacrificially because that's how their God gives. Sacrificially. Deuteronomy 15, 7. If there's among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. But you shall open your hand wide to him. And willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. So there's this true need. And God doesn't even say, okay, give it to him. But make him pry your fingers open. So he can get to it. Open hand policy. No reluctance, but a joy to give to true needs. Things that we Earned that are rightfully ours, money, perhaps possessions, things. We have the freedom to do that for the sake of the gospel. So Jesus isn't prohibiting justice in this passage. Justice belongs in the courts, but in human relationships, wants us to be forgiving, wants us to be loving. If our rights are assaulted or stolen, don't. Uh, retaliate because we've been dehumanized. Don't treat others and dehumanize them. We're not of this world. So you see that the conflict of kingdoms, really. How our ten- this, this teaching goes exactly opposite of the, the response of the flesh. And it shocks the world system. John MacArthur says it's a biblical spirit, isn't it? Spirit of Abraham who rushed to rescue Lot who had so cheated him. The spirit of Joseph who generously forgave his brothers and tearfully loved them. Brothers who had sold him to slavery. It's the spirit of David who after being chased all over by an angry evil Saul. To slaughter him. Spared his life on two occasions. The spirit of Stephen, who lying crushed beneath the bloody stones, asked that the sin of stoning him not be laid to the charge of those who did it. The spirit of Paul, who after his conversion writes of love and forgiveness in Romans and Corinthians. The spirit of Jesus, who said, Father, forgive them. Here's how Timothy Keller puts it as we close. Why you turn the other cheek, why you give them your tunic, why you go the second mile is you never close the door on a relationship. Remember, the context of this is relationships. 
Leave your gift at the altar. You always say, I'm going to give you a chance to do it right. The non-Christian approach is never again will I give you a chance to do that because of what you did to me. You dishonored me. I cut you off. Even though I'm not going to come after you and try to beat you up, I want nothing more to do with you. The relationship is over. Forget it. He says, the Christian says, listen, what you did was wrong. And I really want justice. But it's not just because I need somehow in any way to reinstate my great honor. I also want you to know this. I'm not going to let you continue to sin against me because that wouldn't help you. Anytime you want to be friends, I'm ready. Anytime you want to get back in a decent relationship, I'm ready. Because you see, I want you to be able to do it right. How can we possibly have that attitude? You can't have that attitude if you're not in the kingdom. We can only have that attitude that comes from Christ. So, where do we stand? Are we ready to get insulted, perhaps? Walked over? Is our life consecrated to God? What does it mean to give your life or put your heart into the hands of God and submit it? What claims over even our dignity are we willing to give for the sake of the gospel? It's this kind of attitude and living that honors God and wins people to Christ. When's the last time we turned the other cheek or... Didn't just give our tunic, but our cloak as well, or gave up our freedoms and went that extra mile. We're willing to give up our possessions that are dear to us. How can God speak such harsh words? I think it's because it's in in these words, believe it or not, is found our greatest joy. If our greatest joy is God. May God bless the preaching of his word.